Welcome to the Talk Me Some Art and Other Stories podcast. I'm your host, Guy Massey. On today's show, Breaking Down the Grateful Dead. Plus, the holidays. perform no matter how they play it the music is both intrinsically and apparently complex yet simple it has a certain quality to it let's examine it one by one as we start with Phil Collins bass. Phil Collins, he's another great artist, but I meant Phil Lesh. The best, the, I think the best bass player known to man, known to me at least, in Jerry and the Gang's band. And he starts off and uh, the fans, the deadheads, out in the way out in the hinterlands of the audience, on the outdoor venues especially, could hear the power of Phil's bass come over them like a wave. That's how they described it. A wave of sound. Gave it a great low foundation to the playing of the band collectively. They are not individual musicians. Although they do solo, of course they're individual musicians, but they didn't play individually, they played together. Without getting too into things, um, I want to focus on the individual playing in the band, part of the band playing. They're all cooperatives, each cooperated with the other and played off each other wonderfully, just wonderfully. Let me try to articulate Phil's bass playing. It's complex and simple, as I said. Um, very delineated, yet also a little rubberized, isn't it? A little rubberized. Never any real softness to it unless the song called for it, a particular song, uh, which there are probably... Well, there are hundreds of songs that they could choose from on the on the fly as they performed in front of the audience. They would call a song. They had a, an informal set list, um, but it fluctuated, and they would pick song number seventeen, Bertha, and maybe go into Jack Straw, China Cat Sunflower. Maybe they would lead off with China Cat Sunflower the next night. So they had that whole selection options that they really um, had the power. They had a real power as a band in that sense. 
and the spontaneity. They, they wanted to always maintain spontaneity and originality as they played. No song was ever done the same way for each concert. It was always done differently. Each concert sounded differently. The quality of the sound changed. Must have drove the sound engineers and recordists nuts. Uh, multi-track, multi-track recordings or, or two-track recordings, double-track, whatever way it was done. Amalgamation of sound, glory of sound, glory of music, celebration of music. So that's Phil's bass. Jerry's guitar, sing-songy complex run of chords, run of notes um, focused yet not focused um, virtuoso yet uh, reduced to simplicity esoteric yet spot on directedness other guitarist combined those qualities qualities for, for an overall quality I like that sentence no other artist combined qualities plural to some certain quality variation on what I said before Bob Weir's rhythm guitar, underrated rhythm guitarist. He's still performing, dead in company. John Mayer on stage before vast audiences. Live, Grateful Dead, of course, is known as a live band. Probably the greatest band, live band, live act to grace any stage. Bob Weir had a crisp, rhythmic rhythm. He always wanted to support Jerry. He started off as the Warlocks. They started in Jerry's uh, practice studio uh, when they first met. That was Bob's desire to support someone. He just wanted his quest out there was to support someone with his rhythm guitar. He knew he couldn't play. You can't really do a song... I guess you can, but you can't really do a song with just rhythm guitar, right? Um, unless it's a, sort of a poppy kind of approach, a la Beatles. Um, not a lot of lead playing in Beatles. Jerry was the lead guitarist. He was the lead. He played notes. He played chords, but he played notes. He played run chords. And he needed support. And Bob was there and loved Bob's mission. Bob's mission was to support any guitarist that he could find and he landed as if by kismet on the fat man Jerry Garcia and that was just a joy for him to be able to do that and then their interplay their their togetherness their togetherness um, like a hippie fest togetherness and the spirit of it the music uh, was a reflection of the culture at the time and it's still Bays the spirit and, and can do and, and sort of joy that uh, 
works today, works today on so many levels. We need refreshment. We need reminders. We need reminders, don't we, of maybe the way it was before, uh, the sense of, of optimistic destiny that was the hippie movement of the 60s. It started out good. It ended bad, probably. Acid trips aside, that's a whole other a whole other take that uh, we won't really explore here, although that could be for vast exploring. I never did acid, so I don't know what it was like, but I've dreamed really heady dreams. I think acid is an acid trip, in my take on it, is like a dream, like a really cool dream, too, a dream that doesn't have any, you know, I know people have had bad trips. I'm sure they were really bad trips, but the good are not even mediocre trips. No trip was really mediocre, I'm imagining, with acid. It was all profound. It all had a profoundness and grandeur to it. The people coming off acid never had grandeur trips. They never thought they were the greatest thing since sliced bread. They had a sense of humility, I think, from what I gather from it. And I think that's Jerry's guitar playing embodying the spirit and joy of music and the artistry, the artistry of music um, and the legacy, continuing a tradition and legacy uh, that uh, is rare, very, very rare, rare rare as hen teeth, really. And um, as we move over to our keyboardists, which were all on board, no pun intended, all on keyboard. We had Pigpen, piano blues, blues, blues influence player. His father was a blues disc jockey. Um, we had Keith Godshock, husband of Donna Godshock, the vocalist, female vocalist in the band that Added a sex appeal to the band, and someone sexy up on stage with the dead, dressed up the band definitely in the 70s. But Keith, uh, starting starting with Pigpen, he he had he I don't know enough of Pigpen. I haven't really heard a lot of the early early dead music being performed. I have heard some of it. You got to it's de rigueur, but not enough to really examine it or listen to it fully. Although I did listen to songs full through and performances from, let's say, 72. 71, I draw a blank. I know they play. I know they play. Um, band started in Palo Alto, California in 1965 as the Warlocks changed later that year into the Grateful Dead. With the name of that band being the insistence of Jerry Garcia. Other, the other band members weren't crazy about it. I think they later on adopted it and became, you know, became the band, you know, the, the name of the band, of course. So, um, I can't really get into Keith, get into Pigpen's descriptive playing uh, in a descriptive way. I can talk a little bit about Keith. He had uh, a good punctual playing the rhythmic playing again. This is a rhythmic band. Remember, this is a rhythm band with uh, bluegrass 
rhythm. The drummers added the bluegrass element, of course. Um, so, and good block cordage in a rough style, giving it texture, real texture to, to Keith's playing. Real texture, not, not virtuosic playing, block, block, block chord, comping, a lot of comping, a lot of comping, a lot of soft background comping, wasn't overboard, didn't want to uh, overplay his hand, um, didn't want to outshine the band, just wanted to be a soft background, a soft background, but yet punctual. And we have Brent, who's a virtuosic keyboardist. People have made many comments listening to the band, how to come crisp and, and his high notes, his high runs, his runs. Um, also comped, less so, played it more in the line of the melody, worked off Jerry without overpowering Jerry, complimented Jerry. Played in unison sometimes, note for note with Jerry, relative. Had hints of harmony. Some notes would play a third or a fifth interval on Jerry's first interval, or vice versa, and created that interplay. Again, that interplay, interplay is very important. The drummers were serviceable, and well, more than that, both great. When, when Bill played alone in the 70s, when the hiatus of about five years or so of, of uh, Mickey Hart not being the second drummer, um, people liked the idea of a one drummer, Grateful Dead. Um, they relished the idea of it. But when Mickey came aboard, they weren't dis- displeased, I'll just say. But Bill, uh, Bill is a competent drummer, competent, very competent, more than competent. Um, powerful drummer, a powerful drummer. Not, not a technical drummer, and not a foreground drummer, a background drummer, a working man's drummer. A working man's dead, 50th anniversary of that album. Mickey, a percussionist, flamboyant, slightly over the top especially with his cymbal work. You can see it uh, on songs like um, uh, Jack Stroff from Arkansas, Lay Your Money Down. Uh, on that, he hits the cymbals on that. Um, pronouncement man, percussionist, uh, using the chimes, using all the different devices. Track, the drum trackpad electronic was introduced in the 80s, late 80s, with that technology. And uh, he's, an ado- he's an adopter. And to this day, he uh, runs world drumming uh, venues, world drumming uh, projects. He's got a lot of projects. Mickey Hart is a man of drumming projects that brings people in from all over other musicians from all over, and uh, he takes in any, any influence he's open to, um, so it's just wonderful, 
and that's that's the lineup. That's the bands, the three quick, the three keyboardists at different points in history in the band. 60s to 70s, with 60s to early 70s, with uh, Pigpen. Um, early 70s to late 70s with Keith, and uh, 80s and very early 90s. Well, 80s. He's in 80s because he died in 1990. Uh, Brent Midland, um, and that took me 16 minutes to explain. Because that's the simplicity yet complexity of this band. It takes a little bit to explain, but I had, you've got personnel there to go through. You've got the five different positions of the band. The bass, the lead guitar, the rhythm guitar, the drums, and the keyboard. And there's two drummers we're talking, we talked about. One bass player, one rhythm guitar player, one lead guitar player and three different keyboards through history, keyboardists through history, on the Hammond B3 and on the piano, synthesizer, big in the 80s. So in that almost 17 minutes of explanation, or 16 solid minutes, I hope I gave you a, uh, from my perspective, I could be wrong in some of these analyses, I don't think I am, I'm pretty musical, so I know from from where I whence came, Whence I came uh, on, on that on that package that, that packet that little packet of information and uh, it's an informative band and they brought a lot to a lot of joy to people and they continue to do that on YouTube through through their recordings through their CDs that you can still get you know, yard sales or pick up uh, that are still in in being in print in production. Um, through their live performances on YouTube, as I said, um, through their vinyl, you know, there's another certain level of vinyl quality. I've got an analog uh, tape deck, an old 70s tape deck that I want to get uh, real, real-to-real recordings, uh, audio recordings of uh, Grateful Dead studio, the studio albums especially. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that at some point. Maybe bring a certain show, a special show on on the analog tapes of the Grateful Dead and possibly other bands, but it's predominantly the Grateful Dead, of course it would be. Um, and I haven't done a show on the Dead in a while, so this is why I'm doing a little bit of a. I talk, I bring up the Dead on a lot of my shows, but I, I haven't delved into any aspect of the band since uh, maybe a couple of months, so it's been a while. So. It's good to always bring back Jerry and the gang. And we have Jerry Garcia on lead guitar, Bob Weir on rhythm guitar, um, Phil Lesh on bass, electric bass. We have Bill Kreutzman on drums, Mickey Hart on drums and percussion. Pigpen, Ron Pigpen McKiernan, keyboard, Keith Gorchuk, keyboard, and 
Brent Midland keyboard, never playing those 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 three keyboardists, aforementioned key, uh, aforementioned keyboardists I just alluded to, don't never played together, never played together. They just they were at separate points along the timeline, along the timeline of Grateful Dead. Watching Wagon Train. The expensive scenes were just produced, done in the can, disseminated for us on Western Oriented Television. Dan Duria stars in Wagon Train, a black and white series. They just finished a rainstorm. That's what the expense is all involved with. Quite a bit more logistics involved with producing an actual natural rain. They gotta wait for the rain, they gotta schedule, gotta wait for the bad weather to come through. Got sound effects. The rain's over. The bandana wearing Dan Duria character. Stops. Our character, our co-star of Wagon Train in Tracks. A struggle has ensued. It takes off on the horse up the hill. Some of you wagon train fans out there know exactly what episode I'm talking about. We're all fanatics in our own mind, aren't we? I love Dan Durier as one of my favorite actors. There's a sense of pathos with his delivery. sure-footedness though he's not an everyman's actor he's an antagonist he's definitely an antagonist so the show is produced in Hollywood as most westerns are Buckles Brannigan ran from 1957 to 1963 Buckles Brannigan was a fixture in American television Buckles Brannigan the series Ran in color in 1963. They discovered color. Put it into play. Doubled, more than doubled the production budget. Actually tripled the production budget. New lighting had to be installed to saturate the colors, make them realistic, get the exposures right. It was all about exposure. Wardrobes had to be colorized in a sense for muted color, coordinated color, let's call it that. The costume, the costume, the lighting, the sets, the sets alone had to be lit. Uh, extra lighting for color, 
correct color. Have to be realistic. The overall sets that kind of rode out to the scrims in our backgrounds, mostly in our uh, control sets, which were more uh, in town and the actual cities, towns, what have you. I know Buckles talks about his uh, production value with rigging, uh, lighting manager, helping the rigging, cracking bad jokes, causing mayhem on the set, interrupting uh, takes. The director had to call something like 20 takes to get a scene right because the lighting manager uh, decided to rift off on his own it was the uh, Harry show. It was the Harry show. Harry was the lighting manager. Uh, I don't know his last name. Buckles would know everybody's position and names uh, by rote. Back on the set, back in the program here. The Conestoga wagons are in progression down the trail. Charlie Worcester, the character Charlie Worcester. I don't know the actor's name. I gotta brush up on all my characters, get my knowledge set down. At some point, I will. The horse comes down the prairie grass, and he's about to meet up with them. You can hear the hoofs. Puts the brake on the horse. They're having a little bit of Indian Indian issues with the Sioux. Came across an Indian burial ground with skulls on top of posts. Now we get some smoke signals. Ain't no invitation to a quilting bee. The Sioux are pretty warring. The food wagon is the first wagon in line. I love the sight of Conestoga wagons on the trail. They're heading out west, San Francisco way. That's their destination. The whole show was based on destination. Implied. Underlying. They have an injured party here. Dan Duria character. Dan Durier is a strict father and the daughter is beautiful. She's taking the 
whole proceedings into her own hands. She just fired a rifle up in the air. She proceeds down the trail with the team of horses in the front. Her love interest, Justin, is meeting up with her. Her name's Nell. Father overlooks everything. He's got a gun. Riveting drama. Riveting drama from a series called Wagon Train. Ran from that famous interval of westerns that's always apparent up to 1963. I suppose it was about 1963. It was a culmination, culmination year of Westerns. When a lot of the stints, the great running stints ended. Rifleman ended in 63. I think Wagon Train ended in 63 or 62. Laramie ended in 63. Something about 63 that ended the Western. At least that quality western aspect, black and white. Very rarely did they go color by then. Buckles Brannigan ended in 63, and it was color in the last year only. Um, they decided to hang up production. Buckles had other engagements. He uh, was sick, actually, in 64, and they couldn't do any kind of even thinking about Continuing the series by then, 63, late 63 is when he started getting sick. He was sick just for a couple of months, but it, uh, it really put the, put the wrench in the cogs as far as continuing that series. Um, other series like uh, Wagon Train and uh, Wanted Dead or Alive ended around that same time. So the Western had a great run centered around 1960, centered around 1960. Um, and it was a pageant, a pageant of great actors and actresses that graced the camera. Clayman's got his eyes on Nell. Rifles cocked. A jealous father. It's as simple as that. That's what this whole show is about. He's superstitious. He's afraid of Indians. 
and he accidentally shot his daughter. He's got mental problems, apparently. These scenes tend to be very touching. And the father insensitively takes off in a Conestoga wagon. party ensuing. They're encamped. Storm. Looks like a twister. Our hero's carrying Ned back, hiding under a rock to avoid the tornado. Antagonist is fighting the tornado. He's got his fist up in defiance. And it hits a rock, the wagon does, and he falls to the ground. And he's sucked up by the tornado. He's gone. No trace of him. He's dead. He's gone. Meanwhile, back at the camp, after the fact, Remnants of the storm clouds retreat. Go 
going to look for the Claiborne wagon. He just got off his, our hero just got off his Pompalosa horse. One of the stars of the show. And he just found Danduria dead. Our young hero brings back Nell. He's in tough shape. He's still alive. Nell is okay. She emerged from the back of the Conestoga wagon, reveling in the beauty of the post-tornado atmosphere and surroundings. Wagons ho! That's our battle cry for, to end the series. Hope you got a little something out of that. It's fun to just do a running commentary. I wish I knew more about Wagon Train. I knew more about Rifleman. I would have been able to get more detail for you. But I hope I was able to give you a little bit of a running synopsis as the show progressed. Thanks for joining me in the fun. So the coronavirus, we may have a vaccine, Pfizer. Looks like they're developing a successful vaccine that, uh, uh, vaccine that may solve the world's problems. It'll be the richest company on the planet probably by the time it's all said and done. But uh, this could be a great thing. This could end all our frustrations. Right? If we can dip this in the bud or take care of it after this long haul that we've had to endure of wearing masks. I, I, I hate people wearing masks. I can't see their faces. I can't see their expressions. I can't see if they're happy people or sad people. I can't really get a read on people with masks on. It seems like, oh, ho, oh, hum, everybody's going to wear masks. Okay, let's just wear masks. But it's more important than that. It's more important than that. It seems like people don't realize it. You can't see people's faces. You, you miss the, the identity, the character of these people without their masks on. And that's all I have to say about coronavirus. I'm glad it's possibly going to be behind us with a with a powerful vaccine that's going to eradicate it from the face of the earth, hopefully. It may not be ever gone, but it'll be lowered to the point where people can go back to normalcy. We can have normal lives. We can get rid of the new normal and come into another newer normal, which was more normal than the normal 
that we were experiencing. This is Guy Massey. I'm host of Talk Me Some Art and Other Stories, the very podcast that you're listening to. And um, with me from South Fork, our own, our very own, Buckles Brannigan. And, uh, oh, okay, Mark, is tell- this is the way podcasts go sometimes, not, not as planned. This is definitely not planned. I hope to have Buckles. We're going to have him in a couple. Mark's telling me what he's doing. A little piece of victory sign to me, showing me about two minutes before we have the connection. Um, we got that high technology going on with between Pawtucket and South Fork, Texas. Um, we're going to go back in time. Now we're going to go in modern time. Buckles is in the town of South Fork uh, in his little studio that I helped set him up. I'm proud of it. He's got a great little setup in his hotel room in the corner. Sort of the center of the room, actually. Um, He's got another microphone. He's got two microphones. Uh, One for guests. He's yet to have a guest in the studio. I've yet to go visit. I visited South Fork uh, a couple of times with Buckles. It's fun. Mark Mark made one visit on his own uh, volition. Uh, I had to do some podcasts without Mark. I actually wanted uh, one podcast without Mark. He was only there for, I think, two days, and we did a little, happened to time out right, because I was doing a little bit of a mini, a very mini break, a very mini hiatus from uh, from my show. Uh, but Mark's, Mark's back here, and uh, he has buckles now. Thanks, Mark. Good job. Uh, Mark always comes through for me. Buckles, welcome. How, how are you? I know what you want to talk about today. You're all excited to talk about. Uh, why don't you tell us what you're going to talk about or what we're going to both discuss? Thank you, guy. Thank you so much. And I hope I'm coming in clear. Buckles, you're coming in as clear as a bell. In fact, maybe a little too loud. Mark might want to adjust that. In the back there, Mark. Um... I I want to talk about how's this guy. I think we're good. Um. Okay, here we go. Sorry about the miscues, people. But uh, I want to talk about the holidays coming up. I want to talk about the double whammy of Thanksgiving and Christmas. All excited about it. I want to talk about what we did in the past in 18, 1850 when I was still young. I was about uh, 14. I was born in 1836. Uh, born in New York City. And uh, my parents moved me. Uh, I was their only child. And three of us moved, grabbed a stage in 1836. Never turned back. We went down. I was four, three or four days old. Three or four days old when they moved me down, down a ways. Less than a week old. Can you believe it? I was a tiny little thing. And I don't remember. I have no memory, no recollection, of course. And you moved down through, you came in through Wichita, I believe. 
My dad uh, thought he had a job settled in there. Uh, it was before the telegraph, before any real communication. Uh, we had to get uh, physical messages. It was, uh, one of the one of the uh, lawmen in Wichita, Wichita Sheriff's Office. Uh, one of the representatives came up and uh, knew that there was some some uh, people to tap into that would want to go out west and and uh, stake their stake their livelihood down there, uh, leave the big city, leave the city. New York was a fledging city at that time, uh, as was a lot of East Coast cities, Boston. Uh, and uh, but but New York. Uh, so my dad found out through this messenger that came up that there was a job available, and they wanted they knew of my dad. I had uh, my dad was in the in, involved with the uh, city uh, office there, uh, the law office, the, not the not the lawyer's office, but the the criminal investigation, criminal investigation. And uh, it turned out that uh, Wichita ended up not being where my dad went in. He went into South Fork, and that's how we ended up in South Fork. The stage uh, was misdirected. We, we took a wrong turn from the stories that have been uh, passed down on me. Uh, we were in Wichita for a, a couple of months. Um, my dad uh, took odd jobs to, to uh, pay the bills, so to speak, and uh, and uh, then and then we did get on the stage. We ended up looping through, almost got as far. We went as far west as the Panhandle before we had to turn down south, and uh, re- got redirected. Uh, you know, a lot of times the stage he knows where he's going, but this guy uh, was a heavy drinker. This is the stories now that I'm being told. Uh, I was only at two months old at this point, and uh, he, um, two or three months old, I don't remember, but it's been told that the, the, the stage stage rider, driver, the, the, the guy out front, the guy uh, on the bench out front, uh, and his sidekick were both uh, real partiers, apparently, and it's amazing that we even made it there because the wheel wheel of the stage broke at one point and uh, I'm glad all these details were were conveyed down to me through time through time understanding guy and you did eventually make it to South Fork correct I did I did I made it I made it through South Fork Um, we um, we got we got into town Uh, took us about a week just a just a harried adventure, and uh, my dad took a job in the sheriff's office as an investigator. The sheriff uh, wanted to enhance his availabilities. Uh, he wanted to uh, not be so uh, so dependent on just him. He needed another another man's perspective. And uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. It's the modern term. My mom was the the housewife, the housekeeper, and uh, we had a little cabin just outside of town at that time. Uh, uh, I live in a hotel. I live in the old Yeller. Uh, today is my 
stomping grounds uh, in South Fork. But before that, we was, this, we was a small little cabin and a ranch. My dad tried to divide some time between farming and uh, police investigation. And uh, because he was a peace officer, he had to donate, uh, dedicate, I should say dedicate more time to his, uh, his profession. But he did have the profession of farming. And uh, he was a bit of a sodbuster, I guess you would call him that. Part-time sodbuster. And he realized that he had to do, make it more of a full-time if he was going to get anything off the land that way. And uh, of course he didn't because he went into law, law enforcement. And uh, never turned back. He stayed with that job. And uh, when I was five, I remember I've got four or five or six years old, I got memories of going in and staying in and playing checkers in my own way. I never could really get the checkers down until I was a little older, but it was fun to just play. They'd humor me. Uh, My dad loved having me on his lap as I played checkers, as he played checkers with uh, Sheriff Wyatt who was a longtime sheriff, South Fork. And uh, it brings me to the holidays. It brings me to what the holidays were. It was before electricity. We had a Christmas tree, a Tannenbaum, a Christmas tree in our little shack. And uh, we put some candles on it, and it almost started a fire. You know, you had a lot of fires back then just from Christmas Christmas uh, decorations uh, that were from the candle variety could really start up a storm. I know in Pawtucket, today's electricity, modern homes, you can drive down any side street of Pawtucket and see some beautifully decorated and some kitschy, some tacky uh, homes that are decorated with electric lights, the modern, modern 2020 electric light variety. Some incredible displays of uh, LED. Never would have thought we would have LED lighting in 1870. I can tell you that right now. But uh, of course, later on, 18 by eight, the town of South Fork, I think, was electrified in 1890. Uh, actually, 1900 was uh, was the first electric light in town. So we had our old-fashioned candle-lit displays, but it was pretty. And it was more about people visiting and coming in and seeing you and stopping by the and, and having that kind of family, familial uh, kind of uh, uh, ventures. And, uh, and uh, we had guests in, in our, little, our little shack and uh, stayovers. The holidays were a lot about food, a lot of food. My mom was a great cook. She made some great great holiday kind of I've got some early memories of my mom's great holiday cooking she made a lot of pies she made a lot of pies and uh, she was known for her pies in the area she won some pie blue ribbon Uh, she won a blue ribbon one year at the uh, the great South Fork uh, fair and in it was right in uh, in the streets of the city People came from all over to uh, see farm animals and uh, uh, sort of uh, compare notes and 
pass out ribbons and awards and there were prizes there was uh, there was a little bit of uh, fun games uh, uh, kind of carnival kind of carnival atmosphere to the whole thing so I was fun that was not that was fair days those were more in the warmer seasons but the the cooler you know the as cold as texas gets it can get cold wow those desert landscapes can become quite cool and we're not big in the precipitation not big in the snowfall but we did get an occasional rare uh wet Uh, holiday season so uh, and the Lord was a big part of uh, Christmas especially uh, we, we praise the Lord and and baby Jesus at Christmas time and peace and peace and harmony uh, throughout the throughout the world not just in our little town we thought big we thought big at Christmas time. But Thanksgiving was wonderful, and uh, we're looking forward this year in South Fork to the holidays. I'll be down there. I'll be down here. I'm here in South Fork now, and uh, we'll be uh, looking forward to another great holiday season. And I know you are going to have a nice time up in Pawtucket, guy. Yeah, I want to decorate the house. Um, I want to do a little bit more decoration. I'm not haven't been a big decorator in the past I did have a light display that is in the shape of a Christmas tree on my side porch of my house had a nice magical look to it I liked it when there was snow it was really pretty to look at the colored lights um, I, I got a I'm a sucker for colored lights at Christmas time um, but I'm gonna hopefully get it more into decorating this year I want to have a, a little table tree I like those little table trees it's got a Victorian feel to it all with the natural uh, you're going to get a real tree I suppose yeah I, I, I will definitely get a real tree uh, I'm going to get like a wide little tree maybe three or four feet tall um, it'll uh, I won't use all of the ornaments that uh, have been passed down from the family we've got some heirloom ornaments but I'm not going to use them all we've got enough to, to fill up a large tree and then some so I'm going to select the, the nicest ornaments the, the, the most cherished ornaments I'm going to be very careful and gingerly handle them uh, I'm going to keep an eye on the cats they're good though I think they'll I think they'll be pretty good with the tree um, haven't uh, I didn't put up a tree last year I was going through some problems um, I, I put up a, a little artificial tree on my drum table in the uh, in the living room um, but uh, how about you what do you how do you lay it out in your hotel room do you do anything well we got electric we got electric now here in this in this century and down at South Fork it has advanced some I put some candles in my window I'm the only one that's last year that had little candles in my uh, two little windows that uh, overlook South Fork and in my side windows that overlook the side alley of uh, this is sort of a side street actually 
where traffic can, can go back and forth and there's entry points and exit points from there it's like a regular street and there's uh, another window that's on that side I'm on the corner and uh, I put a candle there so I had three candles in all three electric candles uh, white and very pretty and I wish uh, the people in their hotel rooms but you know it's a transient hotel because um, a lot of the we've got some residents full-time residents in the hotel but there's mostly people that just coming and going and uh, the management didn't put candles in so it was up to who was in the room to do it and uh, they allowed me to do it and I was glad to had a little Christmas tree. I want to do that again. Uh, I haven't put it up yet. We're still in the uh, first week of November here, second week of November. But uh, we are uh, right on the heels of Thanksgiving, and uh, I'm gonna have. Uh, uh, I'm gonna make a nice turkey. Uh, I've been invited to cook at. Uh, uh, it's, he's he's a great friend of mine. He he knew my dad, um, and uh, he's going to have uh, Thanksgiving in his cabin, which is in Mayville. I'm going to be going out to Mayville um, just for that day uh, to prepare the turkey uh, with his wife, and he's going to have his kids in town. Um, one kid's a lawyer, he's a young, he's uh, 30 years old, and he's a really smart, smart kid, uh, and uh, his name is uh, Bob, and uh, he's going to be um, helping us out, and, uh, and we're going to have a real, real nice time in the holiday season. So... I, so you're not coming to Pawtucket not going to make it to Rhode Island uh, on the holidays we're going to be down this way so if you want to talk to me you're going to have to do it like like uh, like you are right now where I'm I'm in South Fork because I'll probably be between Mayville and South Fork I'll, I'll be down this way guy well I want to thank thank you so much for a little uh, a little quip and a little bit of a journey into the holidays and, and your perspective and where you came from and, and, and your little stories of the holidays in South Fork. Thanks, thanks so much, Bruckles. Thank you, guy. <laughs>